Okay. Um, now, this is my second introduction of the day, second and last. Um, I have the pleasure of presenting to you our new chief of surgery. He is the surgeon-in-chief of Brigham Health and Dana-Farber. He is the Mosley Professor of Surgery at the Harvard Medical School, the Crowley Family Distinguished Chair of Surgery at the Brigham. He is, in fact, <laughs> as you might imagine, a very distinguished surgeon. He is a very distinguished uh, research scientist as well as a practicing surgeon. He is an accomplished administrator. Uh, and in an area that, that we might not see at, quite at once, in the area of training new doctors, teaching them by example as well as by instruction, he is outstanding and deeply committed to each and every one of these kids who comes to us and then goes on almost always to a brilliant career, sometimes as a scientist, sometimes as a physician or doctor, sometimes both, and often in the end as a chief of department, as indeed Jerry is himself. Dr. Gerald Doherty. Well, thank you, Marshall. I um, thought if I stood up, it might cut the introduction short, but I was wrong again. <laughs> Too bad. Thank you, uh, Marshall and Betsy, and uh, for the invitation to come talk today. Um, it's nice to, to get out of the office and, and come meet some new people, see some new faces. And thank you to all of you for your commitment to the Brigham and, and uh, your curiosity about what we do at the hospital and, and uh, how the, we can all um, together better benefit our, our patients and our future. I'm going to take about 15 or 20 minutes and, and tell you a few things um, about, maybe one minute about myself, the things that aren't in the program, um, maybe two or three minutes about the Department of Surgery just to give you some details about that so you can um, uh, have those in your, your pocketbook. And then um, I, I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about this age that we live in of cancer care and, and how we do that together at the Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center. And I'll leave some time at the end so that I can try and address any questions that you all might um, try and stump me with. So a few things about me. I am not from Boston. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, the oldest of, of six children, a big Catholic family, um, who are all spread around now. We have one brother still in Pittsburgh, but the rest of us have moved around. I scattered to Holy Cross um, in Worcester as my uh, foray to New England. I uh, met my wife there, Faith Cunin, was a classmate at Holy Cross. And we got married shortly after graduating from college while she was at Suffolk Law School and, and I was at Yale Medical School. We then kind of trooped around the country um, as I pursued what I thought was going to be the best places to train in surgery and in cancer surgery, and then uh, joined faculties. So we lived in San Francisco and Bethesda, Maryland, and 
St. Louis, Missouri, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that whole time, Faith was trying to figure out why we didn't live in Boston. Um, <laughs> since she was born and bred here, grew up in Linfield, and, and always thought this was the very best place to be, and, and thought there must be some kind of job that I could get and hold in, in Massachusetts. And so we finally made it back. Along the way, um, we raised two children. Our son, Kevin, is 27 and is, uh, lives in Washington, D.C., where he works as a mathematician for a, a defense contractor. And our daughter, Megan, uh, lives here in Boston, over in Southie, actually, and works for Fleshman Hilliard as a graduate of Boston University. <clears throat> so that's a little bit about me. Uh, I will say, of the two of us, Faith is by far the better, more interesting person. So if you have an option of who to sit with at lunch or dinner for another event, um, always sit next to Faith. She's also five for five on bar exams. <laughs> One of the things about moving around as an attorney, you have to keep taking the exam over and over again. So um, she's sworn she's never going to take another one to threaten her perfect record. So a little bit about the Department of Surgery. This is a fairly large Department of Surgery. On, it's not larger than the Department of Medicine. Departments of Medicine are quite big. But the Department of Surgery here is a big one for a Department of Surgery. It's about 180 faculty members. About 150 of those are physicians, surgeons, and the other 30 or so are um, all different kinds of faculty members, statisticians, PhDs of different varieties. Of those 150, last year 48 were on the top doctors list for um, Boston. So about a third of our physicians are considered top of their field uh, here in the community. Medline, which is one of our, our resources of, uh, of uh, news in, in medicine, named the top 20 commencement addresses for medical schools um, a couple of months ago for the graduating classes that just finished. Two out of the top 20 addresses were from members of our Department of Surgery. Um, it's a very distinguished, very accomplished group. I've never been around such a talented group of people uh, in, in my career. Last year, they did about 30,000 operations in a variety of settings, as Dr. Nabel mentioned, the Brigham and Women's Hospital, Brigham and Women's Faulkner, Foxborough. We also have practices uh, that we support at South Shore Hospital and Milford Hospital and in Rhode Island at the Care New England system and Kent Hospital. So we're spread out quite far as we seek to bring the expertise of that incredibly talented group into the community as close as we can to to where people live and, and work and want to get their care. Of that 30,000 operations, about 14,000 of them were cancer-related, so it's a big part of what we do, um, is treating uh, cancer in all of its various forms. So I'll talk a little bit now about what it's like to live now in, in our era of cancer treatment. And I have to say, this is an extraordinary time to be a physician involved in cancer therapy. The, the field has changed so tremendously, and we have so many different options and opportunities for treatment of patients now that we didn't have 25 years ago when I finished my training, um, that it's really quite remarkable. The most recent thing we have is immunotherapy, sort of this additional type of treatment that we can use to, to treat cancer therapy. And as Dr. Nabel mentioned, the Nobel Prize in, in Medicine and Physiology was given today uh, to Jim Allison from MD Anderson and Dr. Hanjo from Japan uh, for their contributions to immunotherapy, recognizing that this is 
a dramatic change in the way that we treat cancer and the options that patients have. But that's not been the only change. We have much safer surgery, much more um, discreet operations now than we had 25 years ago. And we have much more precise ways of delivering radiation treatment to patients. And that's all on the treatment side, not to mention all the diagnostic differences and, and the ways that we can detect cancer through our imaging um, and diagnose it through less and less invasive biopsy techniques uh, than we had previously. <clears throat> that um, set of changes has made this increasingly complicated. Um, and, and so cancer treatment now is much more complicated than it was in 1993 when I finished my uh, residency training. Um, and I'll give you an example. So most of my time I spend treating thyroid cancer. Uh, so one of the most common cancers, particularly common among women, and actually is increasing in incidence. It's tripled in incidence over the last 30 years. So there are three times as many people getting thyroid cancer now as there were 30 years ago. So in a very common cancer. In 1993, when we found somebody with a lump in their thyroid that we thought was a cancer, the main thing we did was to take out their thyroid gland. And it turns out we took out about seven thyroid glands to find one cancer at the time, because our diagnostic approaches were not very accurate. And then if it did turn out to be a cancer, then we gave that person a, a radioactive iodine pill to kill out any remaining thyroid cells, and, and we put them on thyroid hormone for the rest of their lives. And it was pretty standard. Pretty much everybody got the same treatment. So I thought this was going to be pretty good for me. I only had to remember like two or three things. I, I, was, I was all set. But now it's gotten more and more complicated. So now we, we introduced over the 1990s uh, more and more accurate needle biopsies of the thyroid gland so that we could sort out which of these lumps were cancer and which weren't. And that change and our expertise of our pathologists and cytopathologists allowed us to operate on about two people um, with a thyroid lump in order to identify and treat one thyroid cancer. And that was still, we're still operating on half the people who didn't have thyroid cancer, and that was not ideal. Now, come over the last 10 years, we've developed some molecular tests so we can do a needle aspiration, a needle biopsy of the thyroid nodule and look at it under a microscope and get some information, and then do some tests of the genes of those cells that are in that needle biopsy, invisible specimen um, that the, the laboratory can evaluate and tell us whether or not these patients have cancer. Now we're down um, to operating about four out of five people that we operate on for the question of thyroid cancer actually have thyroid cancer. And that's just on the diagnostic side. Now if we switch back to the therapeutic side, we found out, well, we didn't really need to take out the whole thyroid gland on all those people. We could take out just part of the thyroid gland. And we didn't really need to use radioactive iodine for all of those people. We could omit the radioactive iodine. We could avoid the potential complications of extra surgery. We could avoid the dry mouth and dry eyes and complications that can come after the radioactive iodine treatment. Um, and so, so we started to have to sort out who could be best treated by what option. Now, over the last five years, we've decided some of these thyroid cancers we don't have to operate on at all. Some of them are so small and so indolent, if we just watch them, they never really change. We can do what's called active surveillance of these small thyroid cancers and, and not do any 
operation. Just do ultrasounds every year and check to make sure that the cancer stays the same. So it's really become remarkably better for patients. We're operating on fewer people to treat the cancers. We're doing less um, uh, uh, invasive and less um, ablative treatments um, for the same efficacy. We're curing the same number of people. Um, and that's great for patients. It's bad for me, because now I have to remember more things. Now I have to sort out, you know, what, what's this patient's needle biopsy? What's the genetics of the needle biopsy? What's the genetics of the patients? How do they have a family history of this? It's, it's all gotten much more complicated. And that complexity dictates how our cancer centers have to be arranged. So where in the past we could do this as one clinician, because it was really only one plan, I didn't have to ask the endocrinologist or the oncologist or the, the radiation therapist what my plan should be as the surgeon, because everybody kind of had the same plan. Now the strategies have gotten so much more complex and have become so much more dependent on all these different variables, we have to all get together as a team before we set up a strategy for treating the patient's cancer uh, in order to come up with the best plan. So what does it look like now to be high performance in this area? I think there's a couple of things, but I, I would say the, the two most important things. First, we have to be cutting edge on all of those diagnostic and therapeutic interventions. We have to have the best pathologic techniques, the most cutting edge molecular techniques. We have to have access to the best ways of delivering radiation therapy. There's all that very sexy stuff, if you will, um, that we need to have access to, and, and we do, at, at Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center. But high performance in this case also means consistent, everyday uh, excellence at the simple things. We have to make sure that we do the straightforward things perfectly every time, very um, reliable, durable performance in that way. And, and that's where a lot of my focus is in my involvement with the the cancer programs at, at our institutions. The things that we're focusing on are, are access for patients to these multidisciplinary settings, making sure that everybody can get that complex strategic planning process, um, making sure that people can get it close to their homes if that's possible. We have uh, Dana-Farber sites that our surgeons and oncologists and radiation oncologists practice in at uh, the Longwood Medical Area, of course, where the main site is, but we also have sites at uh, uh, the South Shore site at Milford Hospital. Uh, we're soon to open uh, an area at Foxborough, as that building uh, has now been topped off and hopefully will be finished on the inside pretty soon. Uh, there's going to be a new ambulatory site for the multidisciplinary Dana-Farber Brigham Women's Cancer Care um, on Route 9 uh, in Chestnut Hill uh, at the Lifetime site. So we're trying to bring this kind of expert care closer to people's homes. So what's it like to do all this at Dana-Farber um, and Brigham and Women's Cancer Center? Many of you um, have had experience with, uh, with our institutions, and, and people have commented to me that it's fairly complicated, especially when we recruit people from other institutions, physicians and surgeons, and, and they say, geez, I, I don't really get it. It's two different institutions, but they're tied together, and, and how does this work? Um, so they are two different institutions, but they are completely attached. So Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital, their cancer efforts are completely integrated. Neither one 
would be complete without the other there. I liken it to the two wheels on a bicycle. Um, and Dana-Farber may be the front wheel. It may look like Dana-Farber is steering the, the cancer program and, and is the first thing that many of us see when we have a cancer diagnosis and, and go through the doors of Dana-Farber to see our doctors and get our plan. But the power comes from the back wheel. Um, and the things that happen at, at Bremer Women's Hospital are key to the, the effective management of cancer. And both wheels have to be working in sync and consistently. We can't have one, one rattly wheel or we've got a bad bike. So what do we do at Dana-Farber? So the Dana-Farber footprint includes mainly ambulatory care clinics, so the outpatient clinic sites, um, outpatient chemotherapy infusion, and some radiation therapy. So people go to a Dana-Farber place to have those things done. Dana-Farber employs medical oncologists, so the, the critical people involved in the delivery of chemotherapy and often the diagnosis and, and planning of treatment. The Brigham, in short, does everything else. So all of the inpatient cancer care is done at the Brigham. All of the operations for cancer are done in the Brigham sites. Um, all of the, the um, emergency room care, about 40% of our emergency room care is, is done for patients with uh, cancer-related issues or cancer diagnoses. So it's a, a, a lot of care that happens through the Brigham. And, but neither place would be complete without the other. We couldn't have just ambulatory cancer care sites at Dana-Farber. We couldn't have just inpatient care at the Brigham. We have to have both. Just to give you an idea of some of the numbers, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, Brigham Women's Hospital has about 13,000 inpatient cancer visits uh, a year, so 13,000 inpatients. Um, there are no inpatient beds at Dana-Farber. So just to be clear, there are zero inpatient visits for, for Dana-Farber. Brigham has about 70,000 outpatient cancer visits, where Dana-Farber is where a lot of that's done. They have about 140,000. So about a third of the outpatient cancer care is done at the Brigham, about two-thirds at Dana-Farber. And the radiation uh, treatments are about evenly split. So there's about 31,000 visits at Brigham and about 40,000 done at Dana-Farber. So those are kind of divvied up based on the, the best management place for the patient and the availability of equipment and physicians. Both institutions also have uh, research portfolios, often working together uh, for, for a variety of different things. And, and together, they are a gigantic uh, cancer research effort. The Brigham, uh, of the $650 plus million of research funding that the Brigham uh, enjoys, about $113 million of that is for cancer research, um, where the Dana-Farber total is all cancer-related. It's about $310 million. Uh, and so you get an idea that there's a lot of cancer research on both um, uh, sides of the spectrum. Importantly, again, we couldn't do the research that we do at Dana-Farber without the Brigham. There's a, a group called the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology. Uh, it's the largest clinical trials group in the country for cancer care. Uh, and it's run through the Brigham. Uh, Monica Bertignoli is one of the surgeons at the Brigham. She's the, the uh, group chair for this. She runs this international um, clinical trials organization through Brigham Women's Hospital, sites all over the country and the world, uh, and it's hundreds of millions of dollars of, of uh, support for these um, clinical trials that we often do at Dana-Farber. There are often trials that are run through there, but again, 
um, because of people like Monica. Incidentally, Monica is also the current president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the biggest cancer um, professional group in the world. Um, she's only the second surgeon to be the president of that group. Um, and so we're very proud of her and all of her achievements. And really, that brings me back to what are these two institutions. There are two institutions that are completely committed to caring for patients in the best way, for advancing the field of cancer care through um, excellence in care and excellence in research. But really, there are a lot of wonderful people. Um, the institutions are not the buildings. They're not the, the, uh, the, the roads and the signs and so on. The, the institutions are the buildings. It's the doctors that you go to see when you go to the clinic. If you come to the Brigham and you see folks, we have uh, some tremendous people like Terry King and Beth Mittendorf in the breast program that are national and international leaders in changing the, the way that we treat breast cancer. But most importantly to their patients, um, they are very caring physicians and they bring their best every day um, to make sure that patients have access to, um, to the finest cancer care available. So, I'm going to close there with my formal remarks and, and open things up to questions. But first, I again want to thank you all for your commitment to the Legacy Society at Brigham and Women's Hospital. We all appreciate it as practicing physicians how important it is that we um, have the support of the community and have uh, the opportunity and the resources to, to try and advance the field. Thank you all very much. So I see some hands, and there's microphones on the way. Doctor, you mentioned um, a statistic that thyroid cancer has increased. Yeah. Is that statistic based also on the increase in population? No, th this is an increase in the number per population. So this is per 100,000 um, patient lives that it has increased dramatically. Now, it, it's a complicated thing, the epidemiology of this. Some of it may be increased diagnosis of disease that has always been there. So as we do more ultrasounds for carotid um, disease and do more MRIs for neck pain and so on, we find these small lumps in the thyroid gland, and so we see more thyroid cancer than, than we saw before. It may be that it's, it's minor disease we didn't need to know about, and that's why we're pursuing this strategy of active surveillance for some of these very small lesions that we find. Good question. Thank you. Oh, oh, yeah. Can you comment on the current legislative question about one size fits all for nurses, please? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I feel like I should get Aaron McDonough up to comment about this, and maybe Betsy will want to comment as well. Um, I think my personal opinion is that the, um, our nurses are extraordinarily valuable um, partners in the care of our patients. And we at the Brigham have fantastic nursing care, and many of you may have had uh, interactions with them. My impression, having been at several institutions around the country, these are the best nurses that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So it's a tremendous group. I think there is a, 
I think it would be a mistake for us to have that legislation and to allow the government to dictate sort of the care patterns and how we best take care of people. Um, frankly, for the, and you, you should wave me down if I go too far, Betsy, but if the, um, uh, th this would be a problem for the Brigham, but actually not a, an insurmountable problem in that it would require some increased care. Other hospitals that have less intensive ca um, patient care, it would be a dramatic issue. So some of our, our uh, community institutions where they have patients who are not quite as sick as many of our patients are, it would be a big issue. So many of our patients are in intensive care, already in one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two nursing situations that it, it'd be less of an issue for us. Dr. Nabel, did you want to comment? You, you're... Thank you, Chair. You, you covered it well. Um, it's a complicated issue, but um, if the legislation goes through, it would mandate the hiring of about 4,500 more nurses in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, we don't have enough nurses to meet that number. Uh, the average increase in expense to Massachusetts hospitals would be somewhere between 900 million and 1.2 billion a year. Uh, it would likely draw nurses from critical access hospitals, emergency rooms, and psychiatric hospitals to uh, acute care settings. It would cause a major disruption in care uh, for the state. Um, it is largely being driven by the Massachusetts Nurses Association, the nursing union. Uh, and so we are recommending a vote no. I'm, I'm not sure where the microphones are here, but oh, you got oh, yeah. one. Oh, perfect. Hey. Um, could you comment a little bit and speak to the question of how diagnostics and diagnoses, diagnosticians, will use the vast amounts of metadata that are out there, is that going to uh, be something that the hospital will need to invest in, or is it an industry-wide evolution uh, for the benefit of uh, the, the doctors that perform the diagnoses and prescribe treatment? So, so when you say metadata, could you just clarify a little bit about? What I'm hearing is that the um, huge amounts of data that from these clinical surveys that are out there and many times duplicated or replicated, that there's so much information to be sorted through in so little time to do it, will uh, the hospitals be required to invest in the technology and the software to help comb through the uh, survey data. I think I've been trying sure. to figure out how to frame that question. Yeah, I hope uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I was responding to, the, to, to your correct concern. So that's a great question because there are gigantic um, data warehouses now of, of clinical data since we've gone to almost entirely electronic medical records. Um, and so we're, we are amassing data faster than we currently can analyze it. Um, and so there's undoubtedly important clinical information that could advance the field buried in those data somewhere, and, and we need to sort out how to find them. I, I mentioned Monica Bertignoli, who's the, the head of the uh, Alliance Clinical Trials Group. She has, um, uh, through some of her discretionary funds, is building a 
um, data analysis um, project with, and I'm going to blank on the name of MITRE, um, is a, 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 a think tank, uh, as I understand it, in Cambridge that has done a lot of interesting things over many years. And, and so she is engaged with MITRE to help build a, a data analysis process for cancer patients specifically. Um, to be able to pull information out of the medical records of people who aren't on clinical trials in order to try and use that information um, in some of the ways that we use clinical trial data. Um, so you know, most of the cancer patients in the United States are not treated on clinical trials. And so she is, has um, embarked on a very ambitious project, and I hope she's successful in, in doing that. I think that kind of project is going to have to be done in a way that's bigger than any one hospital and maybe even bigger than, than any one health system like partners. This may be something that's done through a consortium of large institutions or through some function like the Alliance. Great question. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm wondering uh, if anyone on your team and the sort of cancer researchers are looking now into the environmental impact on cancer as we continue to pollute our planet. Uh, what kind of studies are being done there and what kind of information are you finding? Sure. Thank you. So um, I, you'll recognize my bias. All things come back to thyroid cancer. <laughs> That's been one of, one of the hypotheses for why the thyroid cancer thing has gone up so much is because of some of the exposures that we have now that we did not have before, and, and so there's some hypotheses that that could be driving it. There's no work being done directly in our department of surgery, or, or, but I'm certain there is at, at uh, Dana-Farber. The, um, the, the School of Public Health actually has a large uh, epidemiology section looking at some of the environmental exposures and and cancer as well as other uh, chronic diseases. So, great question. Yeah. This is a little bit personal, but 1950, I sat on my pregnant mother's lap to have my tonsils radiated. And 22 years later, it's all over the news about thyroid cancer to those patients. So it's a certain age group. I do not have it. They did remove half of my thyroid. Are you still seeing? patients from that time in the 50s with thyroid cancer, and they stopped that practice. <laughs> That's a great question. So, um, this practice that you mentioned is, th there were a variety of things that we used radiation treatment for at the time that we don't use radiation treatment for any longer. So uh, tonsillitis was one, tinea capitis, uh, in infections of the scalp was another one, acne people used radiation treatment for. Um, there actually was a practice of radiating infants in the first few weeks after birth if they had what looked like an enlarged thymus. They were, they were trying to prevent crib death or, or sudden infant death syndrome at the time, and still we don't completely understand that. So in the 40s and 50s, there were a lot of these practices of radiation in, in much broader ways. Even into the 60s, I can remember the Buster Brown shoe store with a little thing. You put your foot in and push the button, see what your size is. Yeah. So we wouldn't do that anymore, right? Um, so the, <laughs> um, the, the risk period for that thyroid cancer has, has gone by. The latency for that was you know, about 20 to 25 years, and then it seems to go down. There's actually another disease called hyperparathyroidism, 
um, that occurred at a little later time frame in those, that same group of patients, but even that about 35 years went away. Now the, the exposures that we see tend to be more industrial exposures, unfortunate accidents like the Chernobyl accident um, that produced a large uh, uh, epidemic of thyroid cancer in Ukraine. Um, but uh, fortunately, not so much of the, the medical exposures any longer. Yeah, Chicago, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Long Island. Yeah, there was certain practices, and there was a, a guy at the University of Chicago who was the one who actually sorted all this out in the '60s with advertisements in the local newspaper. Ask your mother if you had this treatment, so that we can screen you now to see if you have thyroid cancer. So, great question. What other questions can I answer? I just, oh, there we go. Uh, my table had this question. You seem, one, this is a wonderful speech, and you seem so bright. Why are you in surgery rather than medicine? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of where at your table that could have come from, Marcia. <laughs> so I actually started my third year of medical school, which is when you do the clinical part of the training, where you, just, you first go and see patients. I started my third year of medical school thinking I would be an internist. And my, we do rotations in different specialties, and it's where you learn about what it's like to be in the specialty, and you, uh, you sort of tra trail people around and, and see what they do. And they ask you questions and find out how smart you are along the way. So I did my um, uh, third year medicine rotation in New Haven um, with two friends as my, my classmates who were on service with me, a guy named Greg Orloff. Uh, and a guy named Tom Lynch, who some of you may know. Tom is, was an oncologist here in town for many years, was uh, head of the MGPO, and now is with uh, a pharmaceutical company. Um, and our uh, medicine attending was a guy named Sam Thier, um, who some of you may know from his involvement here in town at Partners and Brandeis and so on. Um, and I was the worst of the three, and so they said I couldn't go into medicine, and I had to go into surgery. That was the problem. <laughs> Just for the record, Tom and Greg both trained with me at the Brigham. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Great. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Are we gonna... It's on the way. Could you talk a little about changing trends in attitudes toward chemotherapy and radiation treatments? Sure. So um, I would say all of our treatments, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and surgery have worked to be more discreet over the last 25 years. And so um, where surgery, you know, we, we've tried to be less ablative, we've tried to be more minimally invasive, have less effect on the normal tissues, either by doing uh, minimally invasive resections with a laparoscope or smaller incisions, smaller resections, and so on. Uh, radiation therapy has gotten so much more sophisticated in terms of treatment planning with uh, computer-guided uh, targeting of very specific areas, and is one of the things that, that we really have led in, in the technology of, of being able to do more discrete treatment planning. And chemotherapy has gotten better as well. Chemotherapy, as you all know, is um, um, giving a, a toxic substance that often, at least in the early chemotherapies, was a little more toxic to cancer cells 
than it was to all the other cells. And trying to find that perfect spot where we could get rid of the cancer cells but, but keep the person uh, alive and, and functioning. Um, and I would say that the advances there have been with less toxic chemotherapy or less toxic ways of delivering it. Chemotherapy that is delivered locally or is bound to agents that, that uh, allow it to be delivered more slowly. Um, not giving chemotherapy to people that it didn't help. So there have been a lot of clinical trials in especially early colon cancer or breast cancer, for example, where we discovered through some very uh, brave patient randomization things where they agreed to flip a coin of whether they're going to get the chemotherapy or not get the chemotherapy and then find out that the chemotherapy didn't really help very much. And so, so often the chemotherapy was about not giving it when it wasn't needed. And then this new breakthrough of the immunotherapy is really remarkable. So the, the, um, a little bit of the backstory on the immunotherapy, we had kind of thought there might be a Brigham or Dana-Farber involvement in, in a, a major scientific prize as it came out for this uh, immunotherapy. One of the, the pioneers of, of immunotherapy for uh, cancer was a man named Steven Rosenberg, who's been the chief of uh, surgery at the National Cancer Institute for his entire career and has really developed a lot of parts of, of uh, immunotherapy for cancer. Uh, and then there's a woman named Arlene Sharp, who's at, uh, at Harvard and Dana-Farber, who has done a lot of the work underpinning more recent advances in, in immunotherapy. Both of them were acknowledged in some of the discussions around the Nobel Prize today, but, but obviously neither of them were, were awarded. The, the award re recognizes the fact that um, both Dr. Sharp's work and Dr. Uh, Rosenberg's work were about increasing the immune uh, interaction with the cancer cells, trying to stimulate the immune system to um, take care of the, the uh, cancer cells more. What the Nobel Prize went for was really um, taking the brakes off some of the immune cells. So there's, there's a, um, th these are all blocking agents for um, the, the things that slow down the immune response. And so the, the Nobel Prize went for this novel observation that we didn't have to just step on the gas, we could also um, take off the brakes. And, and that's uh, unfortunate, I suppose. We would have liked to have had another Nobel Prize to announce at the, the luncheon today. <laughs> it would have been very convenient and good timing, but it just didn't work out. Great question. Other questions? Here's a. Uh, could you uh, also uh, tell us about uh, various forms of radiation therapy? And yeah, so the progress in that area? Of course. So the, the general progress has been to radiate less and less normal tissue and more, uh, you know, more uh, higher doses, more accurate doses to the abnormal tissue. And there's been a variety of strategies to do that. Some of that is using the, what we would consider conventional external beam radiation, but aiming it better, doing what's called uh, conformal radiation therapy, where you aim the beam from a bunch of different directions, and really just the intersection of all those beams gets the maximum amount of radiation. Some of it is by placing radioactive particles into the tumor or the tumor bed specifically so that the the dose is limited to that area very, in a very focal way. Um, I, I'd say overall, radiation may have changed more than surgery has. Um, in, in when we think about what it was like to get radiation treatment 25 years ago and, and what the, 
the experience and the, the long-term after effects of that radiation was like, it's a completely different experience now in, when it's done in best centers. Yeah. Very good. Am I getting hook. the hook? It's a hook. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Jerry, I want to thank you very much for those remarks. And I, I simply want to add, I think maybe a, a number of you know this, but in respect of the joint Brigham-Dana-Farber enterprise, it's really important to say that while the success of that owes something to the friendship and cooperation of our two respective CEOs, and by the way, little of anything to what the trustees have done, but what mostly makes it go is the commitment of our professionals, of our doctors and nurses. That is what is making this so successfully a seamless treatment from the point of view of the patients. And, and it's Jerry who is making this happen. So for that and for your remarks, thank you very much. Betsy, for your leadership, thank you very much. And to all of you, let me just say thank you too. Um, I referred sometimes in these lunches to what um, Jack Connors used to say about charitable giving. And it's important because when I said that Neil told how fragile the Brigham was all those years ago, it's really important to think that the element of fragility is not gone. It's a huge operation. And there is a vast slug of money that comes from patient care and another substantial sum that comes from research. And both of those sources are threatened. The people who pay for patient care would like to pay less. Research is dictated to a significant extent by what the Congress determines, and I say nothing more about that. <laughs> what Jack Connors used to say was that charitable giving what, what we are trying to do, all of us together, is what makes the margin, the additional margin that allows us to move in the area of excellence. And I think that's true. And what we are all doing is trying to reach forward beyond our own lifespans and do something to help that margin exists in the future. And it is a worthy effort. So if any of you are not members of the Legacy Society, I invite you to join. And now, moving to a different level, more pragmatically, those of you who have driven can get a little sticker to give to the valet, and that will relieve you of the cost of parking. Thank you all very much.